This is News from the Peak. I'm Joe Mamlin. So we're very excited to have on the show today, Dr. Rita Cameron Wedding. And she's going to talk to us today about implicit bias. And I've asked Maureen Life to join us at the top of the show today to tell me, how did you meet Dr. Wedding? And how did we come to have her as a guest on our show? So after the death of George Floyd, um, and I'll, I'll admit I'm kind of a news junkie, Um, So I was kind of inundated with the news and not able to sleep and feeling anxious. And I kind of started thinking about like my little corner of the world and child support and human services and how I could be part of this conversation and learn more. And um, so I started um, Googling things and uh, long story short, I ran across um, a TED talk and a NPR clip of Dr. Wedding getting uh, an award and I, it, they had a small uh, clip of her, one of her presentations and it just, what she said in the presentation kind of struck me. And, and at the time what she said was talking about race doesn't make us racist. For me, it, it like gave the green light to have these conversations and learn more. And so I reached out to her actually in the middle of the night and by 5.30 the next morning, I had an email from her um, saying, yes, let's talk, let's do it. And so we um, arranged the time to talk and you were actually part of both of those conversations and we just hit it off. And and of course, as you know, we've just developed a real friendship and camaraderie. Um, We're able to have real conversations. I think almost every time Rita and I have talked, we've had, um, we've either teared up or gotten close. So we're just in, in, you know, empathic people who want to make a difference in the world and um, so I'm excited for you to hear the, the interview. She's she's just a wonderful person. Well, I couldn't agree more, and it's and it's been such a pleasure to get to know her. So stay with us, listen all the way to the end. It's going to be a great episode, and we'll be right back. excited that you're here, Rita. We've, uh, since we started planning for the WICSEC uh, micro learning, the three of us just had a real connection. And there's so much more that I wanted to, you know, we only had an hour for the micro learning. And then just every day in the news, there's more and more and more. And I've, you know, I'm so excited that we get to kind of pick your brain and have continue this conversation. Um, one of the things that came out in the uh, surveys from the Wixic micro learning were people just wanted more, like they wanted you to come back, they wanted you to tell them, you know, next steps. And so, uh, first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have an opportunity to talk more. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we were at Temple Coffee recording this in person with a latte, but me too. We, um, we'll get there. <laughs> I'm sure 2021 will bring great things for us all. Yeah. I want to start with just asking you kind of your background. And I know I've gotten to know you, but um, like what drives you in this field and how did you get into this field? 
Well, it's interesting because I, I think I started talking about some version of this in the 70s. It's like I was uh, early in my professor life and, and I lived in South Dakota of all places. So if you can imagine being in South Dakota in the 1970s as like the only, like literally there are five um, black women in the entire town of here in South Dakota. And I was one, I was probably the youngest. Actually, there were only three of us who lived there. One was, um, uh, I call her the church lady. And one was a, a real madam, you know, a real madam. And <laughs> I was a college professor. And um, I, you know, my, my plan was to get to know both of them because I felt like they were going to help me navigate being like one of few black women um, in an entire town. Obviously during the academic year, more people came. But um, I needed to have a way to articulate or have conversations about race. And it was just shortly, I mean, we were still in the throes of civil rights. All of that was still, you know, bubbling up and bubbling over. Um, and I just needed to have a way to talk about it. And so I developed, you know, some, some very basic trainings on it. And over time, I kept looking for new, innovative ways of having the conversation. But by the time I got to California, one of the, you know, despite the fact that people perceive California as being liberal, it just depends on where you are and who you're talking to. But I knew I needed to have a conversation about race that where I could keep people in the room at the table without blowing up the room. And so that was my, my agenda for doing that. And I came across the implicit bias work and I felt like that was one of the best opportunities and the best um, mechanisms or platforms for me to have a conversation about race, particularly given that when you're talking about implicit bias, you're talking about, I'm talking about my biases too. So I'm not just pointing the finger at somebody else. When you talk about race, it's it's often you did this to somebody or you did this to me. Implicit bias gave me the opportunity to, to develop a discourse or a curriculum where everybody in the room was working towards the same goal. So that's pretty much where I started. And I'm it's really interesting. I, I started the implicit bias piece around 2006. 2007, um, and I have watched it evolve. And I think the biggest shift and change in my work after all these years is the, some of the new research um, and material on anti-racism that has come out. I've made a tremendous shift and I feel like I have a huge debt of uh, gratitude for um, the people who are writing this, this wonderful, new material. Well, and so it's interesting that you bring up systemic racism and implicit bias. So the micro learning that we did was on implicit bias. Um, are the two topics, they're related, but can you talk a little bit more about what the difference is and why it's important to talk about both, I guess? Oh, it's definitely important to talk about both. Um, when we talk about implicit bias, I'm, I'm by and large talking about my unconscious beliefs, attitudes, beliefs, stereotypes that inform my decision-making. So that is like 
what happens to my brain, how my brain activates when I see things like, you know, this is what the research says that our brain activates when we see things like spiders and, and snakes and um, our brains activate in the same way, particularly for white people that this is the research. And I think that it happens to me as well. But our brains can also activate when we see people who we are unfamiliar with or with whom we are uncomfortable. And so um, implicit bias tends to be my personal response to something. Racism is a systemic response. It's almost like how biases and discrimination um, and stereotypes are embedded in the policies and the uh, the laws and the way that we apply these things and in, in, in such a way that now the relationship between implicit bias and racism is that when I have unconscious biases, I'm going to apply those policies and laws and rules differently. I'm going to apply those policies and rules according to the biases that are in my head. So that's why it's so important for us to recognize what our biases are because that means I can be more accountable to how I apply the policies and the rules. And if I could just give you one example. Yes, of please. That. So um, when working in a, in, with a, a child welfare agency, well, actually in 2007, I saw the data on child welfare and that's actually what was my first involvement in, in um, youth serving systems was with child welfare. And they approached me and they said, can you please look at this data? And I thought the data was like, you know, it was California data on disproportionality of African-American kids. And I was like, this is kind of crazy. Are you sure this data is right? It's just like off the charts crazy. And I looked at the government accountability report in 2007 and it indicated that, you know, again, more detail about the disproportionality of African-American kids in child welfare, foster care, and just about every jurisdiction in the country. And I was like, how, how did we get here? What was interesting, so I went back and looked at that last night and I coupled that with some a more recent conversation I had in 2019 with the child welfare director, in which case she talked about the fact that African-American kids and white kids have um, almost identical substantiation rates, yet black kids are 50% more likely to be removed and placed into foster care and 50% more likely to return to foster care. So I said, but if they're if their substantiation, substantiated allegation rates are almost identical, why is there such a disparity in terms of placement? That was just like so mind boggling to me that I asked the child welfare director when I saw her at a meeting, I said, can you explain to me why? She said, well, no, we, we have to do further research. So then when I thought back on 2007, I said, that's what they said in 2007. It's like the reasons that they gave for, for more kids being in foster care were things that were outside of the control of the family, like poverty and housing, not enough mental health services. Well, they can't do anything about that. But my belief is that white families have similar problems, but they get to stay home. Mm -hmm. get to stay home. So I think that, that if you are aware of your implicit biases, when you're at those decision points, let's say in child welfare or other systems, you'll say, 
When I made this decision the, just yesterday about a family who had very, very similar, almost identical circumstances, I didn't recommend placement for this child. I recommended family and home services. I recommended wraparound services. I recommended different things that allowed the child to stay home. So understanding your implicit biases can impact the decisions that you make in the moment. And it also can reduce the, the impact on children overall, because now these children don't have to experience the trauma of being removed from their parents um, if, they, if it wasn't absolutely necessary. They don't have to have the impact of going to a different school, of the impact of um, just all the trauma and stress, not to mention the fact that it will likely impact their academic background. So I think that's, that's the way implicit bias can work. It can basically reduce the disparities in the moment at everyone's unique decision point, potentially, and it can curb the systemic racism. Okay. Right. Well, and I, I guess in my head, I have, I have so many questions about this, but so the training on implicit bias, I remember attending the first training. I mean, I remember attending my first training on implicit bias um, in the early 2000s with the judicial department, um, but it wasn't something that we talked about that often. Is it in your experience, are we talking about this more now than we were? Are, are, are we getting somewhere with this? With the conversation about implicit bias? Yeah. So I, that's a great question. When I first started in California, like 2006, 2007, doing implicit bias training, it was still a hard sell and it was in child welfare. And I would go in and people would sit there and they'd have their arms crossed and they were scowling and they were not happy to have to be there. And I remember afterwards, I would stop at Safeway at the grocery store and I'd buy at least two boxes of Haagen-Dazs bars. <laughs> by the time I got to my house, they were gone. So that was not a good deal for me. <laughs> but, and I noticed within the last three or four years, people, so this is a transition. People started off with their, their arms, you know, crossed in front of them, really mad that they had to be there resisting the idea. And then I saw that there was more openness, the more the field, the more involved um, and the conversation of implicit bias was, was, you know, getting that information was being spread all over. People were then became more open to the idea that, oh, well, Yes, everybody has biases. I have biases. Everyone has biases. And so while on the one hand, that was a good thing. On the other hand, it was almost as though the conversation stopped there. Uh -huh. So I have biases. So I'm good. I'm good to go. But we were not good to go. So the next step is what are we going to do about the biases? Because if we're not intentional, if we don't have an intervention intervention to our biases, it's going to be business as usual. So I do think that um, I think implicit bias has become successful enough that in one of the videos, I'm not sure if we showed it on at our webinar, one of the videos, it was um, 2016, Hillary Clinton was talking about implicit bias in one of her debates. And what, what's interesting about that is that the, the moderator of that video said, this is like now implicit bias is like mainstream. It's like Hillary Clinton is talking about implicit bias. 
So I think we did really see an upsurge, but simultaneously, whenever we have an opportunity, if I can just go on to something else. Sure, yeah. <laughs> in, our, in our society, whenever there we have a shift in the public discourse on race, that conversation about race, or a shift in our policies that have the opportunity to, to um, level the playing field on the issue of race, we see a huge backlash because there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, potentially systemic racism being the cause or, or you know, people want um, equality in such a way that it might take away some of their privileges or their opportunities. So we see a huge backlash. And so, you know, recently, uh, I think some of the, some of you have probably seen or heard about the president's his desire to end, I think he signed an executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping. And on the surface, it's like, it's, it reminds me of what happened in California when we wanted to end affirmative action in California, one of the statements, the supporting statements was, was like, it went something like this. The state of California shall, shall not discriminate on the basis of race and gender. I mean, that sounds great. And I, I asked my students, raise your hand if you think that's a good idea that the state of California should not discriminate on the basis of race and gender. Everybody raises their hand, of course, but that's not what we're really trying to promote. What we're, what we're really trying to promote is a reduction and making it harder for people to apply social justice strategies, anti-racist strategies to their decision-making. We don't, we don't, because if people do that, then that means that all of a sudden, we, what would happen if this, if our country was fair and had equal outcomes for every individual as, as they pretend or suggest they want to happen in this executive order of the president. I think this executive order, for example, is designed to do the exact opposite. It's not trying to uh, monitor or, or eliminate um, or combat, as it says, race and sex stereotyping. It's basically trying to reproduce those stereotypes by making people silent about it so that people can't articulate and they can't think critically about this various forms of discrimination. Well, and what I find ironic is, and I and all of this is set on the backdrop of, I just watched uh, the documentary on Netflix, the 13th or yeah. 13th. Um, you know, our history is just riddled with this just over and over. We correct right. one thing and we just re-implement it in a different way with the mass, yes. you know, incarceration. And so it feels like after the killing of George, um, George Floyd, that we were having real conversations. And as our friend Irma Neal said, like our defenses were down, like you know, in my circle, people were talking and they were having real conversations I don't think I've ever heard. And I just felt so hopeful. And so to, to see this executive order come from the president of the United States on White, White House letterhead, basically trying to clamp down those conversations and re-educating people about what systemic racism is, you, you know, it's just, it felt disheartening. I don't know 
Yes. Um, to say it. Yes, I agree. There's not really a question to that other than I just, it felt, you know, like we're finally kind of getting somewhere and that was scary to people. Um, it is a form of a backlash. And yeah. it's a way, like I was saying to someone on a call yesterday, we were talking about what happened in California. We had two initiatives on the ballot and um, I called them the colorblind initiatives because they supposedly on the surface were designed to promote equality for everybody. Um, one was called a racial privacy initiative, but it really was designed to get people from thinking critically about race. And, and when we have those initiatives out there, even though Prop 54 in California didn't pass, but it didn't matter that it didn't pass because by the time they did that whole campaign, it re-educated people on how we shouldn't talk about race because people need to have their racial privacy. So it was another backlash to, it was like reverse discrimination, the complaints about reverse discrimination, another backlash. So we have a series of backlash lashes so that we can basically control the, the public discourse and get back to that whole idea of colorblindness which I have recently decided that my next title of an article on colorblindness is going to be called Colorblindness, a hoax. Yeah, fake news. <laughs> fake news, because it's like, we are not colorblind. We are, we are so far away from being colorblind that it's not even, it's not even debatable. So I want to go back to something that you, you mentioned before. So and I, and I mentioned that I had gone to this implicit bias training at Judicial in the early 2000s. And then um, one of our colleagues did a training in, at an NCA conference um, a few years ago, and she actually did the Harvard uh, implicit bias test, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but she showed the same slide deck that had people clap when they saw a a face that was good or bad. And it was an auditory, you know, auditory mm -hmm. experience to see how even in that context, when people are, you know, within human services and educated and probably the most open of, you know, people to that idea, how impactful it was. Right. But I feel like we all did kind of leave with that same feeling of what do we do about it? So we have these That's biases. Right. What do we do? What do you tell people? What do we need to be doing? Well, I think there, there are a few things we can do. I think one of the, the most important things that people should do is kind of create this personal audit of their own decision-making. So when I started doing this work, I started to pay more attention to my biases and how they, with whom they were showing up the most. So which groups of people did I have, you know, was I the most prone to have a reaction to? And um, what was my behavior like? What did I, so in, in other words, I started to monitor my own behavior. And I really think that that is a practice that everybody needs to do. Um, I was talking to one uh, individual who was actually um, someone who worked in child support and they were talking about the fact that they had a practice of monitoring their decisions, just looking at their decisions over time, looking at their decisions, and then going back and doing, doing a comparison between the outcomes of their decision-making based on race. 
And what they found is that, unfortunately, they found that there was a high degree of biases in their own decision-making, even though they would not have believed it. When they went back and looked at their own data, it's like in similar circumstances, the outcomes, the disparities um, negatively impacted African-American men, um, fathers. Um, and so, so getting people to do that, that makes, that holds me accountable to my, and then I, I check myself in the moment. In one situation, embarrassingly, I was, um, as a department chair of women's studies at Sacramento State, I was um, talking to a student in the hallway. And this is, I'm, I'm starting to hesitate a little bit because I really, I don't like to tell the story, but I feel like I want to be authentic about how race impacts me too. And this, this student exhibit, it was like five o'clock at the end of the day, I was on you know, the fifth floor, there's nobody there. So all of these things in my head and some of that would have happened in general, perhaps if it, if it was a, a, a male person who just showed up like that. But I think all the stereotypes about black men did pass through my head. And in addition to the stereotypes, it's like he had some of the other forms of things that manifest biases for me, like he had like the sagging pants and um, the tattoos. I'm better on the tattoos now, but uh, I, it was something I had to work through. Probably I'm still working through. Um, he also had dreadlocks, which ironically, I've had dreadlocks. Um, but still, it doesn't even matter. It's not rational. It's totally, it can be totally irrational. And what happens when we have those biases, our bodies take on the bias quite often. You know, so my typically open, welcoming person, particularly as somebody who is the chair of the department who wants to bring students in, uh, my body language when I saw, I said, well, what's happening? And I caught myself. So that was that self-reflection in the moment, self-reflection. I was like, what are you doing? I didn't say it out loud. I said it to myself, what are you doing? And then I was, I did a self-correction. I, I, I was like, you need to stop. And my body language changed and relaxed. And instead of like, you know, looking at him like, out of the side of my eye, I start to talk to him like he was a, a student who was really welcome. So I think that that is a really important thing that I have done to make sure that I am not passing on the biases at my respective decision point. And I think everybody can do that individual, individually, just like the, the, the person I just mentioned who was working in child support. But I also think there are similar strategies that we can use for people, for institutions. I think that we often use what I call a racial impact assessment tool where we can ask people questions. I think I have some of the questions here. They can actually look at their policies and see. As a matter of fact, I had, there was one organization that did this and I'll tell you about that. It's like you get people to describe, you're looking for racial impact. You get people to describe how the policy and practice appears to be race neutral on the surface, but is enforced in ways that can have a result in a racial impact. 
and you describe so when i'm working with groups i get them to describe the policy the laws and the practices um, that are involved in that policy what conclusions can they draw about the racial impact i get them to explore issues like implicit bias stereotyping colorblindness um, and i ask questions like at what what point is this does this disparity occur? All of these things to get them to talk about that. And so that they can constantly, I mean, there are much more sophisticated tools out there, but why not have people do that assessment in the moment? So at a group meeting, it's like, it, it seems like, like in the organization, this was um, in Missouri, I, I was working with a group and it was a, 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 a drug diversion program. And what they realize is that given the population of their town, of their city, very few black women were participating in this drug diversion program. And they did have some exclusionary policies that, for example, that you could not be involved in drugs or have a history with drug use, or you could not have a history of domestic violence. And they thought, well, maybe that's why. But then once they really started to look closer, so they did their own version of a racial impact assessment, when they looked more closely, what they found is that the white women who were coming into the program somehow, because they weren't screening them like they thought they were, these women, it turns out, they did have a history of drug abuse and a history of domestic violence. And so they're like, oh my gosh, we've got, to, we have to open this up. We have to eliminate those exclusionary criteria more black women came into the program. They had the same success outcomes as the white women. But if you don't go in, so if we're colorblind, if we think that we can't talk about race, if we can't scrutinize our policies and our practices based on race, we will never find the truth. So in the situation of, of the child welfare director that I mentioned earlier, when she says, we don't know why we, we still have these disparities, then we need to, we can find out why by doing a simple tool assessment and we might get closer to an answer than we think. Yeah, I like all of that. And I like that there are suggestions kind of on a, you know, an organizational or agency level, look, looking at policies, mm -hmm. uh, but also on an individual level, because it's going to take a combination of both of those. Absolutely. And having checkpoints and, um, you know, on our team, we were talking about, are there team exercises that we can do to kind of check with each other, or like bounce each other's, you know, off of each other, um, kind of having those conversations on a micro level, but then like you said, also being accountable at an agency level. And to be honest with you, I don't know that all or very many human services agencies look at their data in that way, yeah, and slice exactly. and slice it that way because the answer is going to be really difficult. Right, absolutely. I have another, um, I worked with another group. It, this was a probation group and they were using a formal assessment tool. Um, and what they found is that when they had an, over, uh, an opportunity to, when they were doing overrides with this structured decision-making tool, the overrides typically overrides to, to keep a kid in the in juvenile hall as opposed to letting them go. The structured decision-making tool would indicate this child is of low risk for you know, having a problem outside the hall so they can, they can be sent home. But when they would do overrides, the overrides typically were applied to 
big black boys. And that's what this, this is a child, well, this was a probation supervisor and she said big black boys. So now that is, she. I don't know how she figured that out. Maybe they actually did their own informal assessment, but regardless of how they did it, you will not get to that if you are colorblind. One police department um, or jail setting um, someplace in California, when they asked them who, you know, who was benefiting the most from early release programs, you know, were, were African-American or uh, people of color having the same benefits for early release programs. And the individual responded, oh, we, we're colorblind. We don't, we don't. I mean, so that means that that particular entity failed. Right, right. Are there, um, I'm wondering about, you know, the approach to talking about implicit bias and actually systemic racism as well. Is there a difference in how we approach or we engage in dialogue with different age groups? Do you find that, uh, I mean, I'm sure that all age groups are impacted by this, but is there an approach that, um, or do you see in your work that older people, younger people are more likely to be open to this or? Well, the one thing I thought was, um, as someone who was, you know, college age or something during the Vietnam War, and, and you know, definitely had involvement in the civil rights movement, women's rights movement, that means I've been around a long time, so I would be considered an older person. <laughs> so I, I, I would want to think that there are still people like myself around who still have some sensitivity for an understanding of these issues. Now, what they may not have is an understanding, they may have lost over time, this awareness of how systemic racism and sexism persist and how it functions. But I think that, I think, I would like to think, and I don't have any data to support this, but I would like to think that if they knew the facts, if they understood systemic racism, they would probably want something better for our society. Um, uh, conversely, people assume that um, younger people are more amenable to this conversation about race. And I, I just graded some papers last night and I would say that based on the papers I graded last night, my students were all over it. They just read um, uh, White Fragility oh, yeah. by Robin DiAngelo. So they were just all over it. In fact, I learned some things from them. But I think that, you know, when you're, for students, when you're in the midst of this educational um, cocoon framework, it's easier for you to hold on to those beliefs. Whereas for older people, you might be farther removed from, you know, the things that got you excited about social justice, you know, 40 years ago. So, but I think everyone is capable if they are willing, they are capable of getting it because bottom line is if you can tell, talk to people about what would you want for your children? What would you want to see for your family? I tell you, Maureen, at, Every time I was on a webinar the other day and I almost cried 
because I had just done some research on incarcerating children. It, that is the one thing that is a gut punch for me when I imagine we have a, a nine-year-old boy in particular, and he's actually my great-grandson. When I imagine something as egregious as being put in the back of a police car, or all these images of even black children, black, black girls being handcuffed. I showed that one picture at our at our webinar. It just, it, you know, when they say it takes me to my knees, it really does, but it actually makes me, it it injures my soul, but I tell you what that is the one time that I can just imagine and envision myself throwing my body on somebody. I, I don't care what child it is, um, but I can't, the visualization of that is too much. So I'm just thinking that people, if they could get to that level of the affective, that feeling level, because we learn not both into, from an intellectual space, we our emotions are also driving what we think. But when people can get in touch with how wrong that is in the United States in America, how absolutely wrong that is, I can't imagine that everybody wouldn't be concerned and wouldn't want to begin that. I hope you're right. And I hope that the new generation we're having these conversations I mean, after watching 13th, I, we talked about it as a family. I'm like the, this, the data, you can't deny that the data you, you can't say it's a gut feeling that this happens or it doesn't happen or it didn't yeah. happen to my family. And our conversation was interesting. It was really simple. It's, it's racism. Isn't, I like black people. I have a black friend. That's not racism. Yeah. And systemic racism, what it really means in our history. But, you know, on the 13th, they showed um, one in 17, or I should, I should. Yeah. Edit I remember that. Yeah. I think that's right. White men, one in 17 white men. One in four or something black men. I mean, whatever yeah. that statistic is, it's. And, you know, I, I was doing some work the other day and I was listing all of the microaggressions, which are really microaggressions are a form of racism that my children have had since, you know, particularly my son from the time he was in third grade in private school and the teacher called me and said he refuses to take his test, which was absurd because that wasn't my son's personality. And when I got to the school, the, the, I simply said, John, take your test. He says, okay, mommy. <laughs> and it's like, I always imagine that the teacher said, would you like to take your test now? And he said, because he's clever, no, I wouldn't like to. Um, <laughs> and then by the time he got to junior high school, he was told, oh, you, I know I was told as a mother, your son can't learn French. Well, what, what would be, what, why? What's, what do you mean he can't learn French? By the time he was in high school, the, the, the counselor called me and I was already, um, I was working at Santa Barbara City College as a um, administrator and I left my job, I went over there and this guy, by now my son is a senior in high school and he's like, well, you know, your son is not college material. And I was, and so each of those times, it's like each of those times reflect a class outcome for me because I have the ability to get up from my job or leave my job or 
put my job last, put my kid first. That was, I wasn't worried about paying the rent. So I was able to do that. Went to the school every time and made them accountable for what they were saying about my kid. And my son now is Dr. Wedding. It's like, so if I had believed them, it's like, I wouldn't have had a son who is a PhD and who's doing amazing work in the world because the messages he got over and over and over again is that, yeah, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough, which didn't make any sense because both of his parents were PhDs. Which kind of takes us back to, you know, this is impacting, you know, you know, a class issue too. So if you're in working three jobs and you can't leave your job because you're minimum age and you get no vacation. And you've probably also been told those same things, which is why you're, you aren't working, you know, a better job. And what yeah. I, what do we do about this? Yeah, class issue is a huge issue. And so, you know, in some of the reports that were talking about poverty, well, poverty does impact everybody. It's, it's not like a, only black people live in poverty, disproportionately possibly more than them do, but more of them do, but they're not the only group that lives in poverty, but still the outcomes can work out for other groups of people who live in poverty. But um, class is a big issue, but it, it doesn't have to be the determining factor for, um, for the outcomes. It's, it's a matter of how we perceive people. You take the intersection of social class and race, and single parent homes where there's homes that are considered or referred to as a broken home. You put all that together and people who are living in um, low income housing and there's you know no father, all of those things are framing the perception of risk in the minds of decision makers. And, and all of those things, again, are unfair. It's like, it doesn't mean I was raised, my, my father never lived in the home with me. I was basically mostly raised by my, my grandparents who were amazing. And, and I have a mother who is still amazing, but that was, that was the cultural milieu of my family. So if somebody was just looking and judging, they'd say, oh, what's going on in that family? It must be a problem. Had an amazing childhood. In fact, one judge said to me, Maureen, uh, I was in Chicago and this judge said in, in Cook County, Chicago, um, I was doing some work for them. And he said, um, so I said, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to do some work for you because I'm from, I'm from this area. And I was like happy about sharing the story about being from here. Now, by now this conversation was taking place in the, the, conf the um, conference room where, where, where I was presenting. And there are a couple of other judges around. And he said, oh, well, where exactly are you from in the Chicago area? I said, I'm from Chicago Heights. And I was happy to share that. I said, I'm from Chicago Heights, Illinois. I was happy to share that. And the judge said in response, well, I never would have thought somebody like you would be from a place like that. I'm like, and the, my response was, I was confused <laughs> because firstly, I was like, a place like that, I never thought of where I grew up as a place like that. And interestingly, I grew up during a very restrictive time where there is a racial line. So it's not like I could have, my family could have gone anyplace else. It's like right. if they want to live in that town. Um, he obviously didn't know that the, the person who was the lead child welfare director in that, in that area was, um, 
had been my neighbor growing up. So she also was from a place like that. And then the, the other thing was, he, so again, when we talk about racial impact and implicit bias, he at that moment needed to take stock of what happened. He needed to ask himself, so does, if I assume that everybody who's from that community has a problem or is bad or is problematic in some way, is that going to impact the decisions that I make of the kids and the families who come before me on the bench? Yeah. And were you in a position to ask him that? <laughs> no, I was not. I was probably by the time I left, I was still in shock. Before we run out of time, I just... and. I, so I did watch the VP debates and I didn't know if I could make it through the whole thing. So uh, Kamala Harris, uh, you know, I thought did a great job, but as I listened to the commentaries afterwards, um, and then I didn't read this, I didn't read the tweets, but I read a recap of the tweets about what uh, President Trump had called her a monster. Um, And then I saw some clips just, I, I, just going through all of her facial expressions and just dissecting. There was no mention of Pence's um, facial expressions, but it just, it actually made me weep at one point. And I, I just felt like, gosh, we have so much further to come along that this is on primetime news that we're talking about. Basically that she couldn't come across as an angry woman and how loaded that was. Um, I know this is probably personal, but I'm, I'm just wondering what, what you thought and yeah I really get the angry woman trope because it's been used on me more than once in institutions and in such ways that can be extremely detrimental to your career because once people label you that you look like a problem greater than the problem itself so the real issue is racism and sexism and that it's like if I in fact some of my colleagues will say to me well you don't talk a lot in you know these various settings because I've learned that even in cases when I wasn't even when I was in the room and didn't open my mouth sometimes there was some sort of narrative about Rita was there, what did she say? It's like, so this this thing about the angry black woman is something that's uh, one of those controlling narratives about black women. And, and we don't have those same narratives about men. They basically get to be loud and boisterous. They can be just about whatever they need to be. And then we'll say, oh, that's just Jim. It, does, it doesn't get uh, assigned to their race or their gender. So, I think as, you know, I think looking back on that, that there was racism in the room and there was sexism in the room. And there was also the issue of perhaps of the fact that one of the individuals was the vice president of the United States, but by not uh, intervening, there was not a display of, of fairness. Um, and so as a result of that, it's like she, uh, Kamala had to do all the work herself. Yeah, so I just want to, yeah, thanks for that, because I know you and I had talked about the angry woman thing, and just some of the um, commentary afterwards was almost as hurtful as watching the debate itself, yeah. and how careful she had to be with her facial expressions, and it made me reflect, um, you know, on the, on the sexism part, it made me reflect once I was told in a meeting that um, I should ask for permission to talk instead of talk, and I thought, well, that's strange, everybody, all of, and it's, you know, it was an all men group. And I, 
I thought, well, that's odd. All the men don't ask for permission, but I was coming across as aggressive. They were coming across as assertive and it's, you know, but that was like one of 15 layers of complexity on, on that whole, um, on that whole issue. I mean, there was a lot more than just that to it, but (laughs) I don't want to leave on that. I want to leave on something hopeful. Um, maybe you could share some resources with, um, with folks that are listening on, on, uh, I've been, I've been taking some of your advice and, um, kind of doing my own education and reading some books, but could you share some resources that might be helpful? Sure. The three I'll share. One is, uh, one that you mentioned 13th by Ava DuVernay, um, which is excellent. Um, ex powerful, excellent. And, you know, sad in many ways. Um, but Everybody needs to see it. The other one is um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah, it really, it's changing. That's the, it was mostly his book and also Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility that has allowed me to do a shift in my work. So now I, you know, I did implicit bias because it gave me an opportunity to have a conversation about race and be able to stay in the room without people being too volatile, too angry, too, um, you know, resistant. But what I realize now is paying attention to both of their, their wonderful resources has allowed me to go deeper, has allowed me to push the margins a little bit more, has allowed me to have a higher expectation of everybody in that group. And, and now, and, and I'm no, no longer going to be bound by this, this uh, colorblind narrative that suggests that we shouldn't talk about race. We have to talk about race. We have to make race explicit. We have to keep in the center of the conversation if we're ever going to end systemic racism in our country. Yeah. So what is your, and I still cannot believe that you're a great grandma because, and I know we're on, on podcasts, so people can't see you, but <laughs> seriously, that's so ridiculous. Um, because, so, you know, if you could, what is your hope for your great, and it's a grandson, right? Yes. Yeah. What's, well, my hope for him is that he can grow up free of the limitations of racism, that he can just be a child, that he can be a boy, that he can wear his hair however he wants to wear his hair and just be a cool kid without people thinking that those dreadlocks look like, you know, somebody who might be like a criminal. I want him to be able to run in the park, run down the road without fear of being killed. I want, I shouldn't have gone down this road because this is where it just really gets me. I can't, Um, um, the fear of him or any of the other children being harmed, um, particularly in this climate, even more so than 2019 that fear is just an everyday fear. And I think that if people really could get in touch with what that feels like, um, I, I, if they could get in touch with what that feels like and simultaneously understand that nobody deserves that, 
and nobody asked for that. And that is clearly a, a product of how we do race in our country. I just, my hope is that people would want change because it's just the right thing. We just yeah. need to have change, social change. Well, thanks so much to Rita and to Maureen for being on the show today, for sharing that conversation. And thanks very much to all of our listeners and a special welcome to those of you hearing us for the first time. And wherever you happen to be listening, please remember to hit the subscribe button because we have a lot more great episodes on the way and we don't want you to miss a thing. We'd love to hear from you and get your ideas and your feedback. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us on the contact link on our website. News from the Peak is a project of Grace Peak Strategies and is produced by Maureen Life, David Ram, Robert Riddle, and me. You can find the podcast and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public. You can learn more about us at gracepeakstrategies.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Gray's Peak, and we're easy to find on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. This was News from the Peak. I'm Joe Mamlin. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? So now you're going to gag order us and we can't talk about, right? So anyway. Well, I, think we're, I think we're all primed up. Okay. <laughs> Do I go someplace else now? No. Well, I... Oh, I adore you. I adore you, Maureen. Oh my God, how lucky were we? <laughs> you and Joe and me. I know, I keep waiting for us to be together so we can have coffee and just play and just be free of the pandemic and talk about, you know, our contributions to this work. I can't wait for the day. Are we off the air now? Yeah. <laughs> we cut this mark. I didn't curse. I didn't use any profanity, <laughs> so that's a good sign. <laughs> I didn't curse either, which is also a good sign. <laughs> <laughs>